Well, praise the Lord. The title of today's message is The Good News. I don't know if that's the right title there. Let's see. The Good News in Simplicity. The Good News in Simplicity. Well, it's good to be here. I didn't get any amens on that one. That's, uh, that's disconcerting. I'm just kidding. It's good to be here. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Good to gather with y'all both here and those that are watching on stream. I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have at least three people, and not always the same people, uh, watching online every Sunday that have let me know that they're watching. Uh, I can also track who's watching. Well, not exactly who, but the numbers who are watching. Uh, I think last week it said we had eight watching online at home. So that is an outreach that I wanted to share with you and share that that is good and God is good. And I want to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers again. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Now in honor of Father's Day and in keeping with simplicity, I'd like to open with some, some really, really funny dad jokes. So, <laughs> she's already shaking her head. No, don't do this to me. Um, what do you call a factory that makes okay products? A satisfactory. Yeah, that, that, that didn't get a whole lot of laughs. What did the janitor say when he jumped out the closet? Supplies! Have you heard about the chocolate record player? It sounds pretty sweet. What did the ocean say to the beach? Nothing, it just waved. Why do seagulls fly over the ocean? Because if they flew over the bay, we'd call them bagels. That has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon, but praise the Lord. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians. They're pretty simple jokes, and we're talking about simplicity, so there you go. What do you call a row of rabbits hopping away? Receding hairline. I was going to say the preacher with a shotgun. Uh, I, I don't know. So we're in 1 Corinthians, and we know that Paul preached the gospel in Corinth in the early 50s A.D. During his second missionary journey, by the way, opposition did grow fierce there, and the Lord Jesus spoke to him and in a vision, and he assured him that he had many people in the city. And so Paul stayed there for about 18 months. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Aren't you glad we got out of the first chapter finally? Chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that even today, that you are touching this church, 
You are causing people's lives to grow spiritually. You have added to our number, Lord. I thank you for those that have um, joined us recently, even though they're not able to be here today. Lord, I thank you that um, you have sent us some children and that they're in the back. Lord, I ask that you bless that ministry as well. Father, let, we're, we're just excited, Lord, and we just ask that, that you would send us more, more workers and, and, and more people. You said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And now for this time, Lord, we pray for not only ourselves and those who are among us and those who are sick and those who are traveling, but we pray, Lord, for those you are calling from the north, the south, the east, and the west. We call them in, in Jesus' name. Lord, we just ask that, that you would use me today, even in spite of my leakiness and, and this vessel, and Lord, that you would speak through me your words and what we need to get, what we need to apply to our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God and the church said, Amen. Number one, share the gospel simply. This is our life principle. Share the gospel simply and rely on the Holy Spirit. You see, we're good as Baptists sometimes about sharing the gospel, but we forget that there's a supernatural element there too. And He is called the Holy Spirit. And I say He because He's not a force. He is the third in the Trinity. He is God. Number one, simply share the gospel. Number one, simply share the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, we've been talking about the wisdom of God lately, especially last week, versus the wisdom of the world. We learned how the Greeks saw the message of the cross as just utter foolishness and nonsense. And the Jews saw it as a stumbling block. Paul reminds the Corinthians of how much he came to them in our scripture. How did he come? How did Paul come to the Corinthian church? He came contrary to what they thought. He came contrary to what they wanted. You see, in today's world, a lot of times they say to the pastors, you need to find out what their felt needs are and then give it to them. No, I don't want to know your felt needs. I want to know your true needs. Whether you know you need it or not, I want to give you what God has for you in your true need. So that when you look back, you can say, God used First Baptist Church to meet my true need, and I didn't even know it. That's where we want to be. Christians, by and large, today has become a place for people to get get their wants not their needs. So what do people want? What will draw people? You know, we ask that. We can draw a crowd. Man, all I got to do is slap on free pizza outside and and then put on there, no sermon needed. They'll show up. That's simple. The other thing we could do is tickle ears and, and provide programs for their kids. And we do have some programs. But that's not the main purpose. You'll start to get people in your church that way, though. What's happening? Well, in some churches today, we have rank heresy being taught. God is not a genie, folks. I've got news for you. You don't rub the lamp and you don't get three wishes. He's not a mathematical formula that you do this thing and he'll do that thing, guaranteed to get what you want. 
That sounds more like a car salesman, a used car salesman. You know the typical used car salesman joke? Yeah, that guy. Yet too often, this is what people treat God like. As a Christian, you're supposed to be in relationship with God. And guess what? That relationship is not a partner of equals. He is God and you are not. You are the slave. He is the master. You can argue with him, but it won't do you any good. And it'll make you frustrated. I know because I've been there. I'm hard-headed. Guess what? So are some of you. How do I know? Because I talk to you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sort of. All right. You can... <laughs> ah, sometimes I crack myself up. So anyway, you can argue with God, but it's not going to do you any good. You could say you aren't going to follow the plain teachings of Scripture. But guess what? If you don't follow the plain teachings of God's Word, you're going to pay some consequences. Why? Because there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And other churches, to bring people into their organization, they'll leave the Bible out of things. They'll begin to walk in ambiguity. They'll begin to teach in such broad terms that it offends absolutely no one. Worst of all, they have taken the simplicity of the gospel out of their message, out of their churches, and out of their preaching. They've put in instead human wisdom, pop psychology, human ideas into the place of the Scripture. I can tell you right now, I know of a pastor that, that taught what it means to be, of a church, to be a church member to his church on a Sunday. He didn't use much Scripture. From what I told him, from what I saw, he didn't use any at all. And the cross was not central. Evangelism was barely talked about. It was not central. The simplicity of the gospel wasn't even mentioned. There was no dealing with sin throughout the presentation. There was no mention of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It wasn't brought up once. Now what does this kind of preaching do to a church? It robs it of God's power. Because the power is in the blood of Christ. What He did on that cross for you and for me. The gospel is simple. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But you see, that's not a comfortable topic for people today. That's not a comfortable thing for people to think about. What happens? Well, the, the, that offends people. Good! You ought to be offended. You ought to figure out why you're offended and then come to Christ and say, I need you, Jesus. Why does it offend them? Because first of all, it tells them that they are totally depraved. They're reprobates. And there's nothing good in us. There's nothing good in me. Don't believe me? Romans 7.18 says, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Yeah, and that is exactly what I'm saying. Scripture even tells me what the evil works of the flesh are. Did you know that? It also tells me that if my life is characterized by these evil things, then I am not a true believer. I am a false convert. I am a weed, not a wheat. 
Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Guess what, folks? That is offensive. And most people will get mad and they'll leave and they'll, they'll keep giving them that message. If we keep doing it, they'll keep leaving. They want to go to a church to make some friends and go out and party with one another. You don't believe me? I've got testimonies. Don't say it don't happen in Baptist churches either. I have a lot of examples where people will post on Facebook where they went drinking with their other members of the church, and some of them are even on the, on the praise team at their local churches. I'm sorry, I don't want somebody who got drunk on Saturday night up there on the stage telling me how to praise the Lord. When your life doesn't mark what's going on. Don't tell me I'm living in sin, they say. They don't want to hear it. This attitude is pervasive in what they call Christianity today. Everything goes. And I know I sound like an old holiness preacher. But I hate to tell you this. Jesus, God said, be holy for I am holy. He did. Now that don't mean I care if you're wearing long sleeves. I'm wearing long sleeves. You can wear short sleeves. Just wear some clothes when you come to church. But this attitude of I can do anything I want and get away with it is too pervasive in churches today. I can tell you of a man right now who he had 11 children. I know this man. He was a deacon at a church, well respected. One day he even came to me and asked if it was morally wrong to download music off the internet and not pay for it. And you know what I said? I know it's pervasive and I know a lot of people do it, but yes, it is morally wrong. It's against the copyright. It's called stealing, to which he agreed with me. He didn't like the way his pastor handled a particular situation. And rather than talk to him about it, he just stopped attending the services and only came for Sunday school. Red flag number one. And then he would come to the deacons meetings and started to become contentious. Red flag number two. A few years go by, and this same man who had a moral conviction about stealing music has been caught in adultery. He divorces his wife. Now, this is a man with 11 children. He abandoned all 11 of them, abandoned his wife, moved out of the house, stopped going to the church entirely, and he moved in with his mistress. Now, last I heard, he went to another church and where his conscience is salved, and then he eventually married that mistress, and nothing's wrong. They're just salving that conscience. It's okay. No mention of repentance. No mention of coming to the cross. Don't tell me I don't know all the circumstances in that situation. Guess what? You're right. I don't know. Don't tell me that what he did, though, was okay. Because it wasn't. For someone to claim Christ and do something like that, it's wrong. Yet it happens all the time in a lot of churches. I know of a pastor who committed adultery. And rather than resign, 
he held a vote for his retention at the church. The sad part is that just under the 50% threshold of the church wanted to keep him. With no time off, no plan for reconciliation or restitution, he ended up divorcing his wife, married his mistress, and is pastoring a church again right here in Lake County. And they know about it. They just don't care. You're right, though. God does have forgiveness. He does have cleansing. However, when a deacon or an elder or a pastor, whatever you want to call them, does this or does that, my personal opinion, based on Scripture, he's to resign from public ministry and never enter it again. I don't care that he's a good preacher or a good teacher or a good speaker. I don't care if he's charismatic, engaging, and fun to listen to. When we look at the qualifications of a pastor or a deacon or an elder, they're all character-based except for one attribute. And that is they must be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 tells us this. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not have love of money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his house, his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. All that, by the way, fell under number one there. So number two, you're telling me as far as offenses, that there is nothing I can do to get out of this depravity of man. All on my own. There's nothing I can do. You mean I deserve to die and burn in hell? Um, yeah, we all do. We're all deserving of damnation. Guess what? You and I need a Savior. And that's why Jesus came. He came to pay your sin debt that... He didn't know so that you could be clean before a holy God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life and Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, that's all of us, Christ died for us. That ought to blow your mind. While we were still sinners, Christ died for me. Christ died for you. Romans 10, 9 through 13 tells us how we can procure this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you might be saved. No, that's not what it says. You could be saved. No, it says you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the good news. And guess what? It's offensive to our flesh. It's offensive to the sinner. However, that doesn't mean we water it down or change the centrality of our preaching. Jesus is the center. Jesus and Him crucified for our sins is the centrality of the gospel. Let us never forget that. Don't compromise on it. And don't water it down. And don't be afraid to speak about it with those around you. Because He said to. Speaking of water, <clears throat> now y'all know what kind, what kind of jokes I'm going to be telling today, right? Okay, just checking. Speaking of water, I'm an expert at picking leaves and heating them in water. It's my specialty. Some of y'all get that on the way home. Do you know why dogs float in water? Because they're good buoys. Police arrested a bottle of water because it was watered, wanted in three different states. Solid, liquid, and gas. I know that one was really bad, wasn't it? That's why I liked it. I got an odd sense of humor. Number two, when you share, rely on God. When you share the gospel, rely on the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 3 through 5. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. By this time, Paul, in his journeys, had been beaten, and he suffered for his faith. He was been stoned and raised back to life again. We know that in this city, there was great opposition to the gospel, and it worried him. How do we know that? Because Jesus gave him a vision. Why was there opposition? Because... The sinful man doesn't like the gospel, period. It is offensive. But what did Jesus say? Well, Matthew 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. What kinds of persecutions can the Christians around the world and even today expect as they go out and tell the true, uncompromising good news of God? Well, I can tell you, scripturally, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. Woman received their dead, raised to life again. Here it goes. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Guess what, folks? That's talking about the Old Testament prophets. And you know what they say? What Jesus said, even the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And he was a magnificent prophet. He was the top of the Old Testament prophets. And if they beat and they tortured Jesus, why not us? Why not us? That's the question. There was so much opposition that God made a promise to Paul in this time. Acts 18.9 says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul reminds them that, that he was there in great trembling. He had fear and he had weakness. You know, some have said that this is, this is all allegorical. It's, it's not, it didn't really happen. Paul wasn't really afraid. He wasn't really weak. He wasn't really trembling. I'm sorry, but that's not what the word says. It says he was there in weakness. He was afraid. Now, I've studied this passage, and I've looked briefly at the Greek here as well. And guess what? It means what it says it means. It means he's afraid and he's physically weak probably due to some of the sufferings that he had endured before he got there. Yet even with all this, he did not stop or shrink back from preaching the gospel. He pushed forward and he did not preach with the world's wisdom or more intellectually offerings. He preached the simplicity of the gospel. He talked with people whom he met. He told them about Jesus and what God had done. He preached within the power of the Holy Spirit and in demonstration of the Spirit. Now, I'm about to take a little rabbit trail. I don't know, is it a rabbit trail if you plan to go down it? I don't know. But often, when you speak to the denominations about the Holy Spirit, you're going to get too understanding of what they think it means. If you're from the Pentecostals persuasion and the charismatic camps, you're thinking speaking in tongues, healing, miracles, those kinds of things. But when you read it and you're not of that camp, if you're from other Protestant camps, you're thinking about how the scripture says it is cut to the heart, that it cuts to the heart, the word of God does. Acts 2.37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They wanted Jesus. Okay, we've heard. We've heard we're sinners. We need Jesus. What do we do? That only by the power of God does that happen. I want to see that. That's the greatest miracle. 2 Corinthians 4.2 says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know what? I've got something here that's going to make you probably question me a little bit, but in reality, both of those camps were correct, I think. 
without the miracle of the Holy Spirit piercing, piercing our hard hearts, we wouldn't come to Christ. And we also know, which we'll see later in this book, that the Corinthians had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like the days of Pentecost. Now when we get there, we're going to spend some time comparing and contrasting believers in the Corinth church with believers today. Now undoubtedly someone is going to ask me, do we have miracles today, brother? Yes, yes we do. Well, here's what I can tell you about them. You're not going to find the true miracles of God on TV. You won't find them in some splashy, fancy meeting where chaos is happening. You'll find miracles of healings and other miracles in the simplicity of what the Scriptures say. That is, come before the leadership of the church. Remember in James, when we were studying the book of James? And pray for God to heal and do the miraculous in someone's life. And He may do it. The next question I get asked is, well, why doesn't everyone get healed? That's a good question. I got a good biblical answer for you. You ready? I don't know. That's God's business. We're just to lay hands on the sick and pray. You and I don't see the big picture. Only God does. And only He knows His reasoning in any given situation. Remember, miracles aren't miracles if they happen every day. They'd be called normals, not miracles. If it happened every day, would you really need to have faith in God? No, because you'd see it every day. Look at John chapter 20, verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Let me ask you a question. What is the greatest miracle in the Bible? Think about that a minute. What is the greatest miracle in the Bible? Is it healing? Is it tongues, interpretations of tongues, prophecy? Well, it's none of those because those, guess what, are temporary. Because we are temporary. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there are knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Folks, love is the greatest miracle in the Bible. Not love between people, but love that hung on a cross to pay a debt 
he didn't know. For people who didn't care because they didn't know any better. Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the greatest miracle. And do you want to see these other miracles again? Guess what? They didn't really go anywhere. They're still happening in churches. But we want to see them in a true sense. Not a fleshly, flesh, self-centered mockery of true spirituality, but true humility in Christ. You want to see God's miracles? You want to see the greatest miracles happen? Then love your neighbor. Tell your story of your salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to see the greatest miracle. I want to see people saved. I want to see him come to the altar and say, I don't know this Jesus, but I want to know him. One of, one of the most dangerous prayers, I think, that a church can pray, because it will cause a church to grow, is, Lord, give me the urgency to tell my story. Whatever you got to do, Lord, to put a fire under my rear end. Do it. You know what? If you pray that in sincerity, you better watch out. Because I can guarantee you two things are going to happen. One, you'll eventually get that fire under your rear end. But two, your whole life may be turned upside down. He said count the cost. What you're comfortable with right now may not be so good. You may lose your job. You may lose your house. You may have bad things happen. But I can guarantee you, if you pray that prayer and you pray it continually, because he said keep knocking and keep asking, if you keep doing that as the enemy attacks, as your life is turned upside down, you're going to see people saved for the kingdom. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers we like to call him, what you don't know is that before he ever held an evangelistic meeting, he had a man in his ministry, he would go for weeks beforehand. Not just setting out flyers, not talking to people, but all he would do is pray. That's all he would do all day long, pray for salvation. So by the time Spurgeon showed up, God's Spirit had already prepared the ground. Pray. If you don't remember anything, remember this. Simply share the gospel, relying on God's power. I can share the gospel all day long, but if the Holy Spirit's not prepared the ground, nothing's going to really happen. Remember the seeds fell on good ground, stony ground? We want good ground. As the ladies come and prepare, are you ready in this church to really pray, God, I want to see salvations. I don't want somebody from another church. I want to see salvations. If you're ready to pray that way, 
then do it. If you're not, then maybe you need to examine your heart a little bit and ask God, Hey God, um, how come I don't want that? Just thought. Everybody likes to say, man, that preacher came in and did a wonderful job and he preached well and the church is growing and it's not because of the preacher. It's because of the Holy Spirit. And if we don't start praying more, we're not going to see that more. Yeah, we've grown, but we need more. We need more people praying. On Wednesday night, I've been doing some teaching and we've been doing some praying too. Made that a part of our prayer. This Wednesday at the end of the teaching, I'm going to ask those that are here to just walk and touch each and every pew and pray for the people that are not here yet that God would send them. You're invited to that. I've noticed every time a pastor calls a prayer meeting, the same few show up. Nobody else does. I've noticed every time a pastor calls a prayer meeting, something falls out of somebody's life. The car breaks down. I got to pay money to fix this. Emergencies happen because the devil does not want you to pray. He does not want God's power to go forth. Pray. 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 Let the Holy Spirit change you today. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you've never sensed the power of God before, then you need Jesus. You and Jesus need to get alone and say, Jesus, I guess I don't really know who you are beyond my head knowledge, but I'd like to. Hey, you can do that today. You can come up here and I'll pray with you. I'll introduce you. But I can't save you. Only God can do that. Pray. I never understood why people mess around with their eternity. That's the most important thing. Where are you going to spend all of eternity? You ever thought about that? Man, I know I used to before I was saved. Where am I going to spend eternity? If you'd like to join this church by letter, by statement, or by baptism during this song, you can come up here and we'll pray and talk about it and get some information from you. Miss Vivian, we'll get that information from you. If you'd like to meet Jesus, I'm up here for that. If you'd like special prayer, I'm up here for that too. As we stand and sing the invitation hymn or the invitation song. <clears throat>